Here we go, another episode of the Daily Medieval Podcast with um, myself. Um, and today we are talking about a kind of more broader topic, you could say, because typically we've talked about unions, about people, um, succession, you know, abbot all these different things within the medieval era. But today we're talking about medievalism in, the, in modern terms, what we mean by medieval history, how it came about, and perceptions of it, um, which is really interesting because what we have to understand is, is that <clears throat> on one hand, history is, as a subject is really old. Um, you know, the ancient Greeks, I mean, true, they studied philosophy and theology and, and um, kind of uh, his mathematics, for instance. Um, but but within that, there was also an element of history as well. But it wasn't really until the 1800s, quite recently, that medieval history became um, its own subject, a distinguished subject in universities, which um, universities are a German import, and it was Germany that kind of kicked off these things. Nevertheless, what we have to understand is in the 1860s, 1870s, 1880s, medieval history does not really exist. You have ancient history, classical history, um, Greek, Roman um, kind of classics, and you have modern history, which at that time was the 1800s. And then you had history, which was everything in between from about 400 all the way up to 1800. Um, whereas nowadays, obviously, that period we, we split um, between um, medieval history and early modern history. So, uh, you know, so already by the 1800s, we can see that um, by the late 1800s, medieval history is not yet a thing. Now, <clears throat> prior uh, kind of the reason for this, and this is where we kind of get the idea of the Dark Ages, is because essentially before the Renaissance, so before the, let's say, 1300s, 1400s, around about then, kind of it was seen that nothing really happened. There was this period, period of human stagnation. Rome crumbled, um, and then you have the discovery of America, and um, everything in between was kind of this just kind of weird um, mess of kind of anti-Roman, um, anti-classical um, kind of world. But in 1928, a certain um, book, The Gothic Revival, was published, which kind of really changed things, really. This book um, essentially created the idea that prior to the Renaissance, there was a Gothic movement. There was a world which was determined by this kind of northern culture, not that of the Romans, but um, a Germanic culture. However, um, the author, um, Clark, was kind of wrong and is seen as being wrong um, because he took the stance that this was an English movement. He, he kind of looked at um, this kind of Gothic revival through an English lens. However, it's been seen, um, it was it was revised um, 
that it was more of a European movement, that there was this widespread throughout Europe Gothic movement. And if we travel back to um, the kind of late 1700s, 1770, we see people um, already touching upon this. One such person is um, Goethe. Um, 1749 to 1832. He is the kind of father of this kind of um, European Gothic movement um, because he writes in 1770 that there was an architectural movement before the Renaissance. He travelled to Strasbourg, saw the Strasbourg Cathedral, saw that kind of culturally there's, I mean, with it being on the border between France and Germany, Strasbourg has always had issues, whether it was kind of German or France. And yet what we see is this kind of architectural continuity in both um, France and Germany um, that would suggest that once upon a time there was a unified country. Now, obviously, that, that being the HRE. Now, what we have to understand is at this time, Germany has not yet been formed in kind of a modern sense. Um, it's still, you know, this is before the Persian, uh, Persian, uh, Prussian um, unification. Um, and as such, this kind of Germany was was fractal. It was it was a bunch of small states. But they were conscious of the fact that once upon a time, they were unified. And Goethe um, basically was able to show this in, through the architecture, through Gothic cathedrals, that it, whether in Bavaria or Munich or Strasbourg, there was this kind of architectural consistency that showed that before the Renaissance, there was something here before. Um, and so therefore... So much of modern history is then fueled by this kind of Gothic revival. So as we say, we see in Germany this kind of fascination with um, the Holy Roman Empire. We then cut to France, um, and France at this time um, is building its empire in Africa. And so we see with um, Chateaubriand, um, 1768 to 1848, um, becoming extremely obsessed with early Christianity and the Crusades and builds a picture of kind of conquest, of nationhood um, and a, a fascination that fuels the French conquest in Africa. And um, what's really interesting is that um, we see in the Palace of Versailles, there is um, rooms full of beautiful artworks depicting um, scenes from the Crusades um, and around them are the coats of arms of noble families who, um, in this um, present day, had an ancestrally fought in the Crusades. Now, of course, not all of them um, did, but we actually see over 3,000 forged documents being produced in um, kind of the late 17, early 1800s to connect aristocratic French families to these crusading nobles that perhaps your surname was a corruption of you know le puise and or who was a french noble that then went on you know so and so forth um but the idea is what's really interesting is that um you know post um kind of french revolution 
where we're in this kind of age of rationalism, there is still a fascination and kind of a reaction to kind of return to the past, to before then, this kind of romanticised feeling. We also see that, of course, in Britain. Um, the 1800s Victorian era is obsessed with the Anglo-Saxons. Again, this is at a time where Britain is building its empire and there is kind of a racial undertone, really, that the, the British were God's chosen people. And um, a way to rationalise this was through um, Alfred the Great, the Anglo-Saxons and the repulsion of the Vikings. Um, because it was seen that obviously Alfred the Great and the Anglo-Saxons were God's chosen people to defend um, the nation. Um, and so we see a really interesting um, concept, which is that Alfred gathers the name the Great long, long after he's dead. Typically with the other greats, there aren't that many, I believe only maybe seven or so. Um, Peter the Great, for instance, Catherine the Great. These people got their the greats a decade or so after they died, whereas Alfred was hundreds of years after. And the reason was because there was this nationalistic fascination within England um, about the Anglo-Saxon era um, because of this empire. Um, and so we see, if so, to kind of to recap, we have Britain, France. Germany all being obsessed with this gothic revival um, because of the fact that it evokes kind of so much um, kind of about the time period really um, uh, which is which is kind of all links to this idea of romanticism um, again we have to understand that this is kind of the era of science of rationalism we have um, you know the kind of French Revolution and the other revolutions after it. We have the Napoleonic Wars, we have um, Congress of Vienna, all these different aspects which are kind of creating the modern world, especially, of course, industrialization, which for some, typically nobles and um, high-born people, is quite scary. So by, um, so by returning to the medieval era, um, they're kind of returning to this romanticized fantasy. They're kind of um, reacting to the industrialization by returning to kind of this feudal society where everything happened in such a different way, um, which is really interesting. Um, and uh, there are um, kind of, you know, when we look at romanticism, a lot of people will argue um, that um, that the French Revolution was the cause of um, kind of this re medieval revival, but there are plenty um, of texts such as that of uh, Rousseau published before the revolution. And this is why we then understand it to be a reaction to industrialization, to social mobility, um, societal disconnect, um, and um, this kind of return, return to the medieval. And we see nobles, for instance, Horace Walpole, um, very famous person, 1755, builds a gothic house with a medieval aesthetic. Um, and he describes this the, the medie medieval aesthetic as glumph, uh, G-L-O-O-M-T-H. This glumph uh, aesthetic is the combination of warm but dark, 
Um, and that's kind of a very typical, when we think of Gothic, you think of kind of like Frankenstein, I guess, castles, dark, gloomy. Um, and so we see kind of, again, this kind of, this is the early stages of that. Um, and then we cut to the very extremely famous, one of the most famous authors in the world, Walter Scott, 1771-1832. He is, I guess, the father of the medieval world in literature, because he is also within this reaction to industrialization. And when we see in his um, text, Ivanhoe, produced in the 1880s, uh, produced, um, not the 1880s, sometime during his life anyways, um, about, it was about post-conquest England, nevertheless. Now, there's no truth about it, but it has resonated ever since, even in academia. There's been um, a couple of movies named Ivanhoe, and you will always find when there is some sort of um, academic conference about post-conquest England, that someone will touch upon the kind of themes that are presented in Ivanhoe. Um, and so again, it just shows this kind of longevity from Walter Scott in the, in the kind of the world of literature. But we see that as much as Walter Scott has built this kind of medieval world within literature, the architecture equally follows suit. Now we see um, Charles Barry, one of, he was the, the go-to medieval architect in the 1800s. And we see uh, some brilliant examples of his architecture. One of the most prominent examples being that of UK Parliament. Big Ben. Um, there was a fire um, around the 1800s within Parliament where they were burning um, medieval um, tally sticks uh, that would have been receipts for, for monetary exchanges. The fire got out of control, which then prompted kind of a reconstruction. And um, Charles Barry then used his this medieval fantasy to construct a kind of medieval-esque Gothic building. We also see if the same thing, also constructed by Charles Barry, um, in the Downton Abbey house. Um, that is based on a actual um, house. Um, I can't quite remember the name. Nevertheless, again, Charles Barry built it in a a um, medieval style. Um, it's it, although Victorian, it doesn't resonate with a lot of other Victorian houses, and so we see. Um, the 1800s is where it really takes off this idea of um, kind of the medieval era. And um, the 1800s um, also saw kind of the adoption of medieval chivalry and honour. Um, we see that um, this kind of idea of, um, um, uh, I called it sex, drugs and rock and roll um, of kind of the 1700s was replaced by the concept of the English gentleman, based on the medieval knight. Um, and funnily enough, in 1839, a medieval tournament was actually held um, along the borders of Scotland, um, whereby um, people, nobles, were invited um, to dress um, in medieval costume, to joust and take part in um in um in the tournament in medieval fighting um and we also see then in religion confession penance and fasting 
begin to come back into Christianity. And so although there's like a literary tradition, an architectural tradition, we also see in kind of the societal discourse, um, a kind of adoption of medieval chivalry and medieval aspects. And we also see this at all levels of society. Queen Victoria herself was often painted in medieval costume wearing the same sort of outfits as a medieval queen would and of prince albert buried um in the kind of a similar way as a medieval knight is um but then of course we come to the fathers of medieval history that being stubbs freeman and stenton um and the rest is funnily enough history because this is where in england and the uk that kind of medieval history becomes its own distinguished field of study. Um, what's really interesting is that because it is so um, new, um, in a sense, you know, be it only 150 years or so, you can trace back your what's known as your Stubbs number. If you went to university in the UK um, and you studied medieval history, you can trace a lineage back to stubs. Now my stubs number is between is, is either five or six in that my um, mentor was taught by someone who was taught by someone who was taught by someone who was taught by stubs himself. Now everyone has um, this if, if, if you um, were taught in the UK and this is something almost unique to medieval history because of, I mean I've heard similar things in, in maths um, that there's a certain mathematician that did so many collaborations um, in the last um, about 100 years ago that that you also have a number of, of lineage to that to that person. Um, but it's really interesting that because medieval history is so new in that sense that we can trace that back um, and and it's something very quite special and um and i think that's kind of the aspect of history that that is why most people get into it really is that typically there is a mentor a lecturer um a teacher who um inspires um them i for one got into medieval history because i mean i i think it's the most vibrant part of history so many people say that it is so incredibly boring um, that it's useless, but I mean, when we look at history itself, classical history, very vague, over quite a few uh, hundred years, whatever. Early modern history, probably between, let's say, 1500-ish um, up to the 1800s, so only 300 years, very small part of history. Modern history then, 1800 up to modern day, again, only 200 years or so. Medieval history, on the other hand, let's say fall of the Roman Empire, about around the 400s, late 400s, all the way up to the discovery of America in 1500, it's a thousand years. In terms of history, medieval history is one of the largest periods, unless you're looking at, let's say, the ancient Egyptians, uh, where you have the Old and the New Kingdom, that's about 4,000 years in total. But aside from that, medieval history is one of the largest periods 
in, in, in human history. And it's so incredibly vibrant. There are some absolutely beautiful um, medieval texts, medieval manuscripts. There is beautiful architecture. There, it, you have all of the hallmarks of a absolutely brilliant story. You have romance, war, conquest, love, sex, gossip, um, intrigue, murder. You know, all of this is contained in the medieval era that so many people are unaware of. And, you know, when we look at popular culture, there's such a rehashing of so many stories, such as, you know, be it the Vikings or... Um, or, or even the First Crusade, um, or kind of the Norman, you know, the kind of English kings, etc., etc., that so many extremely interesting stories and events are missed out. And people, sadly, with the way that teaching um, occurred for so long, were turned off by history through just learning dates after dates after dates. Um, you know, which killed it for them, um, which is why we have to, as historians, re-energize and reinvigorate people to get into medieval history because it is so important and it's so ignorant not to be interested in it because it has impacted the world. It shaped the world, you know, the Roman Empire fell and the medieval era is basically a narrative of, of social mobility, of people putting their mark on this earth of building a new society, new ways of doing things, new governments, you know, conquests, trying to make a name for themselves and setting up the new world um, as we know it. So thank you very much. I do hope you enjoyed that kind of overview of medieval history. Um, fascinating topic to um, delve into and a lot and a topic that is actually quite open for scholarship because um, quite often we talk about kind of the medieval era, um, knowing that to kind of access it, you need to know Latin um, or, or another language. Um, whereas looking at kind of modern medievalism, i.e. Uh, the 17th century perceptions of the Crusades or 18th century perceptions of the Anglo-Saxon era is a way to study the, the medieval era without knowing those languages, um, which can make it far more accessible for some people. And it's still a very interesting topic, seeing how kind of the, the empire building of France um, ties into the Crusades of the Frankish and this rediscovery of what it means to be French, um, which is fascinating stuff. Um, so there you have it. Um, join us next week for whatever it may be. Um, and um, enjoy yourselves. I'll see you later.